Hello, everyone, and welcome to another Grad Life episode. We're going to be delving quite deep today, so I hope you're all ready for an interesting adventure into the world of what happens when a grad student experiences rejection, but not relationship rejection. Uh, we're going for a more personal academic rejection today, so I am joined by my two hosts tonight. Hi, I'm Vicky. And I'm Monica. Yeah, so, yeah, so guys, like, when you think about academic rejection, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? Well, for me, I think it's something very commonplace. Um, and it's also something that isn't talked about as much as it should and as much as it happens within academia. Yeah, I was going to say, I think it's, <laughs> I don't want to use the word rampant, but I think it's something that happens so frequently that having, having said that, it happens frequently, but we don't discuss it frequently whatsoever because there's this mentality of only showcasing your successes and not showcasing the path that led to that success. So I think it's great that we're able to sit and talk about rejection because I think all of us have experienced it. It doesn't matter how successful you are, you've experienced rejection at some point in your career. And it's important to highlight that because a rejection is not an indication of your self-worth or your capabilities of a researcher. So I think it's just important to highlight that we all experience it, we all go through it, but it doesn't mean anything about us personally. So I have a question in general. Do you think that rejection is taboo amongst grad students in terms of talking about it? I think it depends on the grad student, mm -hmm. honestly. Like I know at least for me and a group of friends that I have, speaking about rejection isn't that difficult. We're very open about our experiences of rejection. But I think for some, it's definitely difficult because sometimes to admit a rejection might mean to admit a failure of some sort. And who wants to admit that they failed? Gavin, yeah, what do you think? Yeah, I think, yeah, I think I agree with Monica. So since we all have the mentality of only showcasing any of our successes or anything that makes us look good academically, we don't want to show any, any other time that a conference may have said no to an abstract, which I know is very rare, or a, a journal said no to accepting your paper for even just for review, the editor could have just said flat out said no. You could have applied for a really large grant and got a rejection, or even when you apply for grad school itself or postdocs, you have to deal with probably a lot more no's than yeses when it comes to that. So I do think that it's definitely a topic grad students probably should talk about a bit more. Because at the end of the day, it's usually the failures that is what makes you who you are, not usually the successes. And I want to bring up something that Monica mentioned right now. So you said that for some people, for some grad students, it's actually easier to talk about rejection. And for other people, they might seem a little bit intimidated or they don't necessarily want to bring up, you know, their failures per se. Um, do you think that depends on the type of company they keep? As in, do you think that there's certain grad students that you would talk to, to, um, to them about rejection than let's say someone within your own cohort? Oh, 100%, because I think, it, I think it's dependent on your program. I think it's dependent on your institution because another thing that is very well known in academia is that there's often circles of competitiveness. Mm -hmm. And so to admit that you've been rejected by something or that something didn't work out for you or that you were unsuccessful looks, it adds fuel to the fire of others that see a sense of competitiveness within you. So I think <sighs> rejection is tricky. Like no one feels good being rejected, but also you want to be able to share that you were rejected and have people that are there to empathize with you and share in those experiences with you. And I'm sure that for some grad students that just 
doesn't end up happening because of the nature of the environment and social context that they're in. So I do think it's important to, if you are able to find a support, ner support network that you're able to commiserate with about these kinds of things. Yeah, you know what? I totally agree with that um, on so many levels. You know, there's certain people, and I think that goes with with anything really, where you feel like you can be more vulnerable and talk about these failures and um, and discuss, you know, what went wrong and what should I do differently. Um, so I feel like that's commonplace in any sort of um, situation, any sort of social situation. Um, I want to talk next about normalizing rejection. Do you think that right now, the way that academia is set up, do you think it's rejection is normalized within, um, within our, I guess, uh, group of people and in our academic spheres? I think it's, it's talked about a lot more via supervisor to students. I think they're trying to prepare them more that this is going to happen. It's unavoidable. You're never not going to be rejected for anything that happens. So I think nowadays, it's becoming more common in terms of being brought up in classes or at meetings, but I still think it needs a bit of work with a student talking to a student about it. Yeah, I think it's becoming more commonplace to be open about failures and rejections and to engage in a discourse about rejections 100%, but I do think that there's still a difficulty peer to peer because once again, depending on your program of research and the work that you're doing, your peers are also your competitors. So the last thing that you want to admit is that you experience some sort of rejection in any regard. And Gavin, you mentioned um, that supervisor-student relationships in terms of talking about um, rejections are important. So do you, do you think supervisors prepare you well in general about um, experiencing rejection? Or do you think there's more of a spectrum in terms of like the type of mentoring that you get from, from certain supervisors? I think there's definitely a spectrum. Uh, I right. think some supervisors are definitely a lot better at it, probably explaining about how rejection works and how you improve from it than others just assuming that you're going to get better after a rejection, but not really talking you through it or explaining how you can improve from it. Or you might get some profs that will, I wouldn't say give you slander for being rejected. I hope that's not a thing anymore, but I but I do think that some props are a lot better than others and it definitely depends on how they mentor their students. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I guess it comes down to more so expectations and what, um, what the supervisor's expectations are of the student and whether they're too high or just right, <laughs> um, <laughs> right? So if we have an interesting show today. Um, we are going to actually have a call-in type show where we have a bunch of different stories about different types of rejections that have been happening within academia and different stories that um that have occurred within different areas and so the three big areas of rejection um i think at least that i've identified and i've experienced myself are program rejections where you know you're applying to a certain program and this is i guess the first type of rejection that you may feel when entering grad school you know a program might not even accept you to come into the program and that's a pretty big rejection um, another one that we're going to talk about is manuscript rejection. You know, a big part of academia is publishing papers, you know, publisher parish culture, that sort of thing. So we'll delve a little bit into that. And in general, we're going to bring up, you know, different feelings that we have with rejection, uh, coping strategies and how different areas um, within academia can 
be can foster more rejection than others and so this is a really special episode because we will have a bunch of people from the committee joining us halfway through to talk about their specific experiences and we'll we'll delve a little bit deeper into that um, before we get into the separate segments do any of you have a specific rejection story that really sticks out in your mind mine are like all the above with all of the things yeah. that you've mentioned like i can think of like program or even like institutional rejections where like I won't say at what stage but at a stage in my graduate career when applying to certain programs like I remember just straight up not hearing back <laughs> from programs and that's how I realized that I didn't get in you just got ghosted so yeah. like that was really neat my first publication ever was a desk reject um, so just to clarify to a desk reject means it doesn't even make it to review. It just means that the editor of the journal, once they get the paper at their desk, they look it over to see if it fits and they're like, mm, no, I don't like this paper. And so my very first publication was a desk reject. And I think it got rejected from a, like one or two additional journals after that desk reject. So like publishing is just one giant rejection trail, honestly. Um, yeah, scholarships. Mm -hmm. where you know there's certain qualifications and you don't realize till after the fact that maybe you don't meet those qualifications like there's I think there's an additional sense of rejection in the fact when people are presenting maybe like something like OGS or certain scholarships and awards and you sit there and you realize that you don't have the marks for them or something of the sort like that is a sense of rejection in itself because you have to sit there and you realize that I I'm not even able to apply for these things. I'm not qualified enough to apply for these things. And that is a whole separate sense of rejection that absolutely sucks. And I've also experienced that. Mm -hmm. Gavin, what about you? Ooh, I think one in particular stands out for me is the classic reviewer, reviewer two mm -hmm. uh, story. Uh, I think if anyone's familiar with ac academic Twitter, we always see the hashtag reviewer two problem that it always seems to be the second person reviewing a paper that gives you the most spite or problems and reviewer ones, the more laid back understanding type. So this was actually when I submitted my first paper and it got rejected the first time I did this after getting reviewed because reviewer two was seemed to be finding every little thing they could find to scrutinize it. And majority of the comments didn't really make too much sense. This seems like they were just trying to find a problem for the sake of it. And I think my supervisor, when she read them, she summarized the, the, their thinking quite fast, saying, they know what the technique is, but they have no idea how to interpret the data. <laughs> so it's like they didn't really know what they were saying, but it was enough to convince the editor that I don't think this paper is actually worth for this journal. Right. But the funny thing is, I then resubmitted to a different journal and it got minor revisions and got accepted. So... <laughs> I think I, it was their loss, I always want to think. Yeah. I mean, it depends, right? You always get a separate review too, and sometimes they're nice, and uh, sometimes, you know, they can really hinder your progress, right? Okay. Uh, what about you, Vicky? Yeah. yeah what so, stories have you got? <laughs> um, I've got a bit of overall, you know, I've definitely been ghosted in terms of programs, just <laughs> not wanting to get back to you. I don't know what kind of culture that is in academia, but apparently it seems common. Um, I've mostly experienced manuscript rejection and grant rejection. So grant writing is is def definitely a, a beast to deal with in academia. You know, it takes so much of your time. Um, I find 
it particularly difficult, especially during a PhD, to focus on a grant, especially because, you know, it's not directly related to your work. It's something that you have to do on the side. And it's just so not rewarding to be putting so much time into it and then eventually getting it back and you get a score and it's 0.2 of the cutoff for the grant. And it's you're so close, but yet so far. So those are the ones that usually grind my gears the most. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, those ones are frustrating. Oh, yeah. Um, So I guess we can bring in Reese and Ariel into, uh, into the chat now to start talking about program rejections, which I sort of mentioned in terms of uh, in terms of ghosting and that sort of thing. There they are. <laughs> hello, hello. So Hi. we have with us Ariel Frame and Reese Patterson. Hi. Friends! <laughs> <laughs> so we were just mentioning before uh, program rejections and, you know, Monica and I both have been ghosted in terms of programs, just not wanting to respond. And we sort of want to hear your stories. So Ariel, would you like to go first? Uh, sure. So uh, I uh, had a tumultuous path to actually get to Western from where I was originally. It took me took me about three years to find uh, the right program to settle into because um, you don't you're not necessarily told this when you're in your undergrad, but um, a lot of getting into a program is not necessarily just well depends on the program. For me, neuroscience. It's not just meeting the like program requirements. You can't just check the boxes. You actually have to find a person who's willing to take you on into their lab. So that means go and and meet them, and uh, they need to have funding for you, and then have a, a place in the lab, like space for you, and then a project for like they need to have so many things line up. And I didn't necessarily know that. So my whole process was you know email people, see if I can get in in, uh, in touch with them, and then. I have to already have paid the application fee and being accepted to whatever program it was. So that meant like every school I I was interested and I paid for. So my, on this path, my main rejection that sticks in my mind always to this day was a lab among, among multiple rejections you can imagine over three years um, was one lab where uh, and it's I do I lab research work, so it's like wet lab. This was a genetics lab that studies like Parkinson's. Um, I I emailed them and I got a reply, and they said, you know, come on in. I did an interview. The interview I thought went well. They they seemed to like me. They were like, okay, well, um, we're gonna have you do this sort of thing to start, uh, and then we'll see. And then if we decide we want to keep you, then then we'll we'll go ahead and accept you into the program. You know, into the into our lab, and then. Uh, eventually to the program um and uh i think it was like a few weeks later they're like oh yeah never mind like almost literally never mind mm-hmm. um and, like i mean i got any i don't even remember what that email said but basically it said now nah, we're good <laughs> and i was like what do you mean now nah, we're good so i was like well i wanted to follow up on this so i call i call the lab and i speak to one of the lab managers or something and they say just quite frankly right to my face um yeah, you're not good enough. And I was like, okay. So that just sits, <laughs> that just sits in the back of my mind uh, all the time. <laughs> um, and do you think that's affected you, Ariel, later oh on? Oh my god. Uh, I, <laughs> I think, think I think that it did, in some ways, affect me. I I've always kind of felt that I was behind, just having taken a bit of time. I know when I started the program, um, 
There's a lot of people who went on the fast path, you know, they did their bachelor's real fast. They didn't break in between. They went right into their master's um, and maybe converted to PhD. So it was like quicker. So the people who I was in school with were all like four, five years younger or something. <laughs> well, at, at, almost mostly at least three years younger. So it felt like a little bit like I've always sort of been behind and it feels like maybe I've had to stick it out a bit longer because maybe I wasn't good enough at the time. But I mean, I, I mean, I've learned since then that like, it's in some ways it's a little bit of a benefit being a bit older and, and, you know, that recognition that, you know, okay, maybe I wasn't good enough. Maybe, maybe, um, I didn't, I was aiming really high and that was a big lab and it was like amazing that I got an interview after all anyway, but you know, who's to say I can't just build some skills along the way and then eventually get to a point where I can be in a big lab and, and do, huge things i kind of i I got some humility from it (laughs) i suppose so reese tell us a little bit about your story yeah so uh i'm in geology so earth science is a little bit different than neuroscience um but i graduated uh, university. I got my BSc in environmental geoscience and I ended up finding a job in my field and I moved to London. So I worked for a year and a bit in my field before I kind of made the decision of like, okay, I know that I wanted my master's. I know I wanted to continue my education. And I applied to lots of places. I just didn't limit myself to Western. I mean, I came from Brock and the the story of if you can walk and talk you can go to Brock like you know and just being on that like low level school (laughs) (laughs) Brock um but uh yeah like I it was very threatening to apply myself and kind of sell my soul a little bit to be like please take me into this program um but my job opened up a lot of opportunities um and a lot of networking connections so a lot of people um that I ended up in my, in my contract, uh, I ended up seeing at conferences and talks and that really helped because yeah, I can write a letter and I had to write an application and all of that stuff. And you kind of, you kind of got to sell yourself there, but when you actually meet the person, it makes a huge difference. Um, I, I applied to Brock again, just to see if I could get in. Uh, I applied to Western and I applied to the University of Waterloo and a couple other places. And again, kind of like what Ariel said, like I, I met the people, I talked to them and they're like, yeah, you're great, but not the greatest fit. And like one of the things, especially in geology, it's a very male dominated field. And I have a male name. So when people see me, they, or they see my name, they assume I'm a guy. And when I go up to them, I'd be like, hi, my name's Reese. Nice to meet you. Like we talked over email, we talked over the phone and a couple people kind of like took a step back and were like, oh, oh, a woman that wants to go into this field. <laughs> Maybe not. <laughs> um, but it was kind of disheartening a to, to see that because I, I, I do work hard. I, I pride myself on my work ethic and professionalism and all of that stuff. And to be denied that just to kind of be brushed off to the side to be like, Oh yeah, you have all these qualifications, but like mm, not enough, not good enough. We don't want you because of this X, Y, and Z reason. 
it sucks. It really truly does. But I ended up taking an opportunity and, uh, people put faith in me to do my master's. So, I mean, I got here, (laughs) I accepted it. And so I'm going to ask you the same question as Arielle. How do you think that's affected you so far? So do you still think about that? Do you still think, um, do you still think about that when you're doing your own work now? Has that um, one rejection carried on into uh, your master's work? Oh yeah. A hundred percent. Imposter syndrome is a real, (laughs) real pain in the butt. I do work in a male dominated field, especially in the petroleum industry. There really aren't a lot of women there. A lot of people, a lot of women aren't in renewable energy or like any of that kind of, um, not to discount the women that are actually in the industry. Um, but it's, it makes it that much harder. And when I'm doing my work and I'm doing my research and I'm logging core and I'm writing my thesis, there's that little voice in the back of my head. That's just like, you, you, this is wrong. You shouldn't be doing this. You should be, you should be doing something else. You should have gone on a different path, the easier path, the, the not as intense path. (laughs) But then as I'm writing it and as I'm doing all of the hard work, it's like, no, like someone might come to me one day and be like, I recognize your work and you helped me to get to where I am. So thank you. And that type of support is hopefully what I will bring to the table in my future career and my future, future life to inspire somebody else to be like, yeah, don't, don't take the BS that people are throwing at you. Like, yeah, rejection's a pain, but it's helped me grow as much as it hurts. It helped, it helped me grow. <laughs> well, I definitely love that because now you can use this experience to your advantage, right? And you can sort of disseminate what happened to you to future gen- generations and, you know, it makes it all, I guess, worth it in the end. So you know what, like rejection is, we're definitely talking about it today. It's a part of everybody's process within, um, within academia. And just one general question I have for both of you, um, would you rather have that upfront blatant, no, thank you, I'm good? Or would you rather have some more of like a ghosting uh, mentality as a uh, what me and Monica have experienced. What do you think is the better uh, type of rejection? Ariel, we'll start with you. Um, I'd say definitely uh, I'm, I'm a brutal honesty kind of guy. I want to hear it. I want to hear it right up front. Uh, and that's why um, I had the opportunity to be ghosted by them. And I actually, that's why I hunted them down that particularly particular lab that said, you know, you're not good enough. Cause I wanted to know why I wanted mm-hmm. to know what the deal was. Cause I thought it went well. Um, and I, I needed that information to go forward and then recognize that like, okay, so I don't have some of that lab experience that maybe they expect for someone in my position. So I have to look at different labs that maybe are able to take me uh, given the experience that I do have. So, you know, I I, I had that recognition (laughs) and And, uh, I'm always, I'm always about that honesty as well. I want to hear them, the bad and the good, because it's also tells me a lot about who they are. And I, I've learned, that it's important to choose who you work with uh, carefully. So, I mean, you can't always choose. Sometimes you're just put in a group of people and some people are not the nicest and some people are are nice, but sometimes you can choose where your workplace is and you can choose who your bosses are and you can uproot and move. I literally, I literally moved to London, Ontario from Vancouver because I wanted to work with someone that I like and not someone uh, who I thought the lab wasn't going to be a good fit for me. So there were, in the end, 
multiple options for me um, that were a bit more local, but I, I actually moved for the sake of choosing someone who actually fits better with me. And like there was, there was a lab, like Reese's story reminded me of uh, a lab where I, in lab meetings, there was shouting matches, there was battles. And I, and I was like clamoring for any position I could take. But in retrospect, I was like, I'm glad I'm not in the shouting match um, environment uh, of that lab. And I'm glad that I moved here to work with someone that I really like uh, and I enjoy working with. So be upfront so you can see, um, have the light shine on those people that you don't want to be with. So you can know because uh, you can be tricked. People can trick you. People can put on a face and trick you for a long time. No, and I, I totally agree. You really need to mesh with the lab that you're working with, with your supervisor on all aspects in terms of personal work life, that sort of thing. And, you know, having that rejection up front does act as a sort of closure. Um, and I feel like that's something that you can put behind you and move forward. Um, Reese, how about you? No show or <laughs> the hard truth? <laughs> I am a Sagittarius through and through. I am confrontational. You tell me. I don't want to play games. Tell me what you don't like about me. Or if you do like me, just tell me. I want, I want to know. <laughs> um, yeah, like I, I, I want to know. Rip the Band-Aid off. Mm -hmm. And in some cases, it's sometimes it's even just like a conflict of personality, like what Ariel said. Like supervisors can make or break a lab and make and break your experience. If you, A, don't like what you're doing, or don't like the person that you're dealing with, or if you find yourself in a situation where you're like, any, any hesitation, you, you got to get it sorted out. If it's, if you're not happy, if there's a, if there's something wrong, it needs to be sorted out. Or if there's a problem with you and sometimes, sometimes it is you, some people just don't like you and you just got to move on from that. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's, it's, some it's hard it's it, it can you can take it both ways but i would definitely prefer to know whether or not you like me or not like me or what i could do better because then i can use that in the future mm -hmm. it is an opportunity for growth right because as much as you don't want to hear why people don't want you you know you get something that can be actionable sometimes it's not an example ariel's case just saying nah like no thank you but um in other cases, if there's actual constructive feedback, you know, it might be something that you can uh, take with you moving forward and um, hopefully make you into a better candidate later on. Um, so I want to thank you guys both for, for telling your stories and um, hopefully this resonates with some people who are listening out there. Um, again, I'd like to say thanks. And I think uh, we're gonna move on to the next section, which is talking about uh, manuscript rejection, which I'm sure is going to be a, a fun time. And joining us for that segment is going to be Danica, Laura, and Elizabeth. So um, we'll just wait until that transition over there. See, what I got from that was two main things. Number one, ghosting is bad. Yes, do always. <laughs> In any aspect of your life, do not do it. The other aspect that I think was important to take away from that was you're interviewing these places as much as they're interviewing you. So mm -hmm. as much as you're hoping to be a good fit for this environment, you need to make sure that that environment is a good fit for you. Don't think that the cards are all in their hands. It is also about you as well. So Jess, 
keep that in mind, I guess. Yeah, I'm definitely not, I'm more of a don't beat around the bush. Just take the shot. If you're going to put me down, just put me down. Don't <laughs> linger. Don't Prefer make me start don't limping. put me down, like, period. No, no, don't. But... In, in terms of just let me know if it's yes or no. Don't have me limp through the forest to just see what happens to me. Just wounded. <laughs> take the shot <laughs> at that point. So... We welcome here Danica, Laura, and Elizabeth. Hi, everybody. How are you guys doing? We're very well, thank you. Good. <laughs> good, good. So we're here to talk about the dreaded manuscript rejection. Um, I know everyone must have experienced this, and if you haven't, it's just going to happen. I'm sorry to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> just going to be blunt. We're talking about being blunt, so I'll mention it here. Um, so we're just going to go through our stories, and then we'll we'll have a little discussion after. So, uh, Danica, do you want to start first? Yeah, sure. I'll dive in. <laughs> uh, so I was part of a pilot study uh, throughout my master's, and this was before I like ended up going into the PhD program that I'm in now. Um, and this pilot study was, you know, a love project, I guess. Um, and it was with my current supervisor. Anyway, we got the data, put the manuscript together, and then that was in 2018, tw end of 2017, and it's 2020, and it's still not published. So we've been going through, I think we're on our fourth journal, um, and, you know, a good metaphor that my supervisor uses is, like, it's going to find a home. We just need to like get it a home. Um, and you know, shopping it around to different venues is just something that I've gotten used to. But another thing that also kind of, um, you know, adds to the experience is like, if it's under review for months on end, like six plus months, um, we had it in review for, I think eight months only to get a very short rejection, which is just like an extra sting. Um, but you know, it's, I think it's important to like acknowledge this thing, like don't dismiss it, like sit in it. You've worked super hard on it. Um, but then also like pick yourself up and the next iteration will be like even stronger. Um, I'm still working on that though, because I do not like being rejected <laughs> in any sense of the word. Um, so I'm not going to sit here and say it's easy, but I think that's the hardest part, right? It's like these rejections, even if it's about like a project, it's a paper, like it's nothing about you as an individual, but it's so hard not to take it personally. And like, as a human being, like this comment is an affront to me as a person, like how rude. And I'm like, I think that's the hardest part to navigate because for a lot of us, our work like is a part of us. We put so much effort into what we're doing. It is like, it's a love project. These are things that we care about and we want to get it out into the world. So when someone rejects it, it's a rejection of us as well. Like, I just, I still don't understand how to navigate that myself either. Yeah, like, I think the last thing I'll say to that is um, I did my undergraduate and master's training in the humanities. So I'm an English scholar in that sense of my training. And like writing, whether it's like handwritten or through, you know, a computer is such a visceral and like bodily activity. Like, it's literally part of you. Um, but we, you know, we're just like, oh, it's fine. The papers, you know, it's its own entity. And it's like, no, it's so deeply connected to you. Like you don't realize that emotional register until it's too late and you have the rejection email in front of you. But yeah, no, I appreciate it, Monica. <laughs> <laughs> I get it. I feel it. 
And Danica, I want to ask you, as you went through all of those multiple rejections, how did you find your reaction was as you moved forward? So your initial reaction versus, you know, the latest rejection? I think the first rejection, I needed about like a week to recover uh, <laughs> because I was so invested. But then every time the other rejections came in, the sting got a little less, you know, intense. Um, and I'm still getting to the point where I can like slough it off and accept it. But, you know, time does heal all wounds. <laughs> it will get better as you go through it more. Um, so shout out to anyone who's just, you know, received their first rejection. You are so not alone. Welcome to the club. <laughs> I think time heals all wounds is going to be my new mantra going forward. <laughs> and the first cut is the deepest. Always. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> These cliches actually mean something going forward. You In never academia. <laughs> so let's move on to Laura's story. So you have an interesting one from what I've heard. Yeah, my story, it's a bit, a bit different. Mm -hmm. I've been working, like I have been working on my first manuscript for the PhD. And uh, one day the, my, my PI, uh, whose uh, office is upstairs, he comes down and he says, have, have you seen this? <laughs> and I took a look and it was a paper with this title. I read the title and I was like, oh, we got scooped. <laughs> like someone else just published the exact thing that we were working on. And I had been working on this for a, like almost a year, like my first year of the PhD. But I wasn't like, I wasn't frustrated about me. I was super scared that he was going to be upset <laughs> because I was so slow writing the paper and I thought I was so slow so that's why we got scooped but he wasn't up upset with me or anything he was just like this happens all the time <laughs> like no worries that's okay and I was like are you upset with me <laughs> was I too slow because this was my first paper on the PhD and the first paper that I was writing entirely so I was being like, I was taking my, my time and I was being super rigorous on every little thing. So it was a, a lot of work for me. But when I saw the paper, I wasn't sad. I was just like, he's gonna fire me. <laughs> so you took it as like a personal, like this is my fault or this is like, it's because I did, I was too slow or I yeah, didn't I didn't, I didn't work fast enough. So because this this is like you it, this is a field and we were taking data that is on public databases. So basically everyone has access to it. So if you want to publish you need to like try to be fast, right? Or like other people can be thinking the same things that you are thinking about, right? Mm -hmm. So I was like no, I was too slow. This is my fault entirely. But then I realized that it, it just happened. That's okay. <laughs> um, so, so, so what do you do with that project after? Yeah. So that was the coolest part. So he said, like, I still think that our, we have some very interesting results that the other paper don't have. And what we can do is try to make it better. So we started throwing a lot of ideas to how to improve that. And now the paper, I, I'm still working on it, of course. <laughs> but now the paper has grown so much and uh, I was able to work on a lot of thing, things that now I'm super passionate about, like with the same data. We just use it to create different figures and like deep, dig deeper 
onto the data and it has been like awesome actually but it was painful at the beginning but now it's like you you need to move on that's an opportunity to like maybe write a better paper or yeah and also i thought it's interesting that someone else is thinking about this stuff <laughs> because i thought who cares about this and there's actually people who cares about that stuff and that's cool as well it's so funny because I've heard so many supervisors that I've worked with in the past saying, you know, like, oh, we have to get this out fast because other people are working on this. And I never take them seriously because I'm saying, who, who wants to work on the work that I'm doing? Yeah, like, no, it does happen. I, I sometimes don't even care about it. Why do other people care about it? It's like, yeah. is it really someone else doing this as well? I don't exactly. know. <laughs> yeah. And so I was told all the time, you know, be cautious with where you're going to conferences and be cautious about how much data you show because other people are going to take it and do something with it. And so I've always taken that advice with a grain of salt. So this story kind of scares me a little bit, but I'm happy that there's a happy ending at the end. So not all is lost. <laughs> yeah, I still feel like science is, is about sharing. Mm -hmm. The fact that other people is uh, working on the same stuff, just I think that that makes what you're working on stronger. Mm -hmm. It's like, okay, we can criticize each other. I can see what you discovered that I didn't. You can see what I discovered that you didn't. So I think it's, it's super like I actually was like that's cool like there's other people who think this is a a good a good question so that's it makes it yeah it makes it feel a little bit important right and so yeah. I guess it's a, a bit of a flattery to you that yeah that's yeah. a nice silver lining to get out of this honestly like, yeah. you weren't expecting really yeah I know it's like okay I'll have to redo the entire paper but <laughs> that's not fun <laughs> there's always a bright side <laughs> So um, Elizabeth, we'll move on to you now. Um, what's your manuscript rejection story? Mine is a bit of an interesting one in that um, I did a master's in, at Western in health and rehab science, but my, fo my focus was much different than my focus for my doctoral work. So I, I have some publications, but they're not in my current field. So I was kind of trying to bolster and boost my publication record in my field before hitting the PhD tarmac running. Um, so about a year ago, I started to apply to the PhD program at Western and I'd actually made some great connections at a conference, the Canadian Association of Occupational Therapy Conference. So here I am thinking, yay, this is gonna be great, get a paper under my belt published for the fall of 2020. Well, this summer, the news came, the email came and I remember I was in a meeting, so never read a, an email uh, from a paper uh, in a meeting because if it's bad news it's gonna be pretty hard to carry on the meeting. So I remember I opened the email and I read it and um, I should mention I was not the first author on this paper, I was the second author. So there's uh, a couple of other people and the first author had done some really awesome, awesome work in the field that I'm interested in and I approached her about a year ago and said, hey Ed, I wonder about adding another dimension to what you're already working on. What do you think? She loved the idea. So off we went and published. So this journal in the summer rejected us, which was pretty hard for me because I really, I had a plan in my mind of how I wanted things to go. Um, and what was really um, hurtful, and I know it wasn't intentionally hurtful, is um, the first author had mentioned to me, she said, I've never been rejected for anything before. I've been publishing for years. So I thought, oh, maybe it's me. Like she's had all these successful publications and now all of a sudden I come on the scene and poof, we're rejected. So I, I didn't know what to do. Like I just, I was so 
um, first of all, envious that someone could publish for years and not be rejected. But secondly, I thought, wow, like, am I really in the right field? Um, so we decided to start revising and reworking and rewriting and resubmitting. Um, I think we're almost ready to resubmit. The journal did give us, um, it was a, a reject and rewrite or whatever it is. So we, we worked on the changes and we're going to be resubmitting. But I think the hardest thing for me was a, that I had a plan that I wanted to have a publication peer-reviewed in my field, starting my PhD, and that B, when we got that rejection, then to find out, um, you know, as the second author that uh, your first author had had all those pre sub previous publications already uh, accepted. So I was, I was just feeling really unsure of my work and, and whether I was actually contributing or, or not. Yeah, so it seems like there's a lot of internalization there. And it's mm -hmm. so hard, like Danika said before, to remove yourself from the work. It's part of you, right? It's your idea. Mm -hmm. and it feels like, you know, the, re the reviewers reject your idea outright. So it can mm -hmm. be really hard, especially if, you know, the first author is telling you that I've never had a rejection before, which I personally find hard to believe. <laughs> um, but I can imagine how difficult that must be, especially seeing that type of news during a meeting. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think one thing that did help me sort of to move on is like to take the reviewers comments because I will say for this particular journal, the reviewers gave very detailed feedback. So it was very easy to say they want points A, B and C addressed. Okay, boom, done. Um, but again, like I think someone else earlier in the show mentioned, we started this journey July 2019. It's now September 2020. I'm like, for God's sakes, is this thing ever going to get published? Like, can we please just publish it? And it's hard when you're not a first author because you can only push so much. It's not your work to say, come on, let's go, let's get published. Um, I think if, again, things I would do differently if I was first author, I would have like author uh, guidelines, author agreements for everybody on the team because one thing that really held us up was some people would take weeks if not months to give their feedback and respond back like some of the other authors so that was really challenging but um it's hard when you're second author because you don't have that kind of control mm -hmm. so i think that adds an additional layer of rejection in that as well like not uh, if you don't have very much experience with the publishing process when you start getting into the publishing process and realizing that it takes like months upon months or even years and then at the end of all that you get a rejection like that's heartbreaking yeah absolutely absolutely but i, I think again with silver linings it's like what would i learn uh, as first author um you know what would i do would i have everyone sign like hey we're, we're all going to work on this as three or four authors can we try to turn feedback around in x number of weeks or days um so yeah, I just have to, I guess, keep plugging away um, and uh, know that as a second author, there's only so much I can I can do, but also know that uh, hopefully coming down the pipe, because I'm just starting my PhD, there'll be lots of opportunities. I do want to ask one more question to the group. Um, so what do you think is the most annoying thing about getting a rejection? So for me, um, in the field that I'm in, it's about once you get the rejection and you're trying to submit to a different journal, they have a whole different set of formatting rules. So it's taking the exact same work and formatting it for a specific journal. So that's something that always bugs me the most about a rejection. So I'll open it up first to Danica. Um, what do you think is the most annoying thing about rejections from publications? Yeah, I'm going to have to jump on board and like piggyback off of the uh, 
you know, the um, referencing and everything, but also to add to that, because I'm now in the health sciences is the figures because sometimes journals have different, you know, portals that you have to vet your figures through. And then sometimes you have to download the figure vetting software and then, you know, figure out how it works just to do the figure, just to submit the paper. So then, you know, on my hard drive, I have a bunch of different software programs that are really useless and only apply to one journal. But yeah, that is the tedious graduate student grind that we somehow end up taking up on behalf of our co-authors. So I'm right there with you. <laughs> I totally feel that. Um, Laura, how about you? Well, for me, because my story is different, uh, the thing that was most annoying for me was seeing their figures and thinking, God, my figures were so much better. <laughs> <laughs> like I made a lot of better uh, like figures. I put colors, their colors were like, ugly and it was like <laughs> better i deserve it that spot so maybe that will be for me so you just staring at the paper thinking there's no soul in it it's just <laughs> yeah. words on a piece of paper also i noticed that for them it, it was like super fast to do because they too are like pi is like very well known in the field but for me it took me an entire year and i was like oh, they did this like nothing and for me it was so much effort and they published first but that's fine but your figures were nicer so who wins <laughs> <laughs> um elizabeth how about you um i guess for me i would say like when reviewer comments contradict one another so if there's more than one reviewer we're like but this reviewer said to do this but this reviewer is saying to do this what do i do mm-hmm. um or just I, I think that would be like the hardest, most annoying thing about it for sure. Um, and of course the word count, like having to sort of slice those words and, and get it to a reasonable word count. Word counts are the bane of my existence. <laughs> I want to write so many things and you just mm-hmm. won't let me put all of my thoughts on the paper. <laughs> so I, I totally understand that. And I guess to add to the, if you have contradicting reviewer comments, I know I was just always told in the end of the day, it is your paper. So if you do have one reviewers going against the other, at that point, you just decide from which comment you think is the most applicable to do. So yeah, at the end of the day, you have the control. Mm-hmm. Alongside- oh, sorry. Go ahead, Gavin. I've oh no, I was just going to say, it's just at the end of the day, you have the control and it's your work. So you just get to decide which comment you think is actually going to help your paper. Mm-hmm. Alongside that, that I want to piggyback off of Gavin's point is unhelpful reviewer comments. So I've received reviews from journals who say, you need to substantiate your methodology. What does that even mean? Exactly. Like it is unhelpful or they'll be like, you know, your description of your recruitment process was vague. So what, like, yeah. So what do you want me to do? So like that for me is the most annoying part is when you get a rejection and when you look at those comments and the comments provide no helpful feedback. Your comments were vague. (laughs) Yeah. Like your review was vague. What do you want me to do? (laughs) Like, it's just like, it's silly. So those kinds of things I find very frustrating because then you can't even sit there. Like we were talking about being brutally honest before you can't even gauge why you were rejected because their comments are so vague and so unhelpful that like you can't even figure out a way to improve from it because they didn't give you helpful feedback in the first place. No, I totally agree with that. And I want to say once again, thank you to Laura, 
Elizabeth and Danica for joining us talking about you your, your yeah thank you <laughs> this is great yeah no this is great um Elizabeth is going to stay on for the next segment and we'll be moving on to you know just general thoughts about rejection and that sort of thing so we're bringing bringing um Liam into the chat now um, thank you guys thanks for having me no problem so what did you want to talk about in terms of um feelings of rejection yeah so i would i would love to tell you stories about my undergrad i obviously won't disclose what university it is just for just for sake of covering up but um, <laughs> i I, I certainly I certainly wanted to make mention of a few instances that that happened a couple of years ago to me. Um, I remember being first year, you know, trying to figure out what I wanted to do. Um, you know, you come in sort of as a general student, you have you have ideas as to what you want to be. But, you know, at the end, you're still trying to find your feet, find your way and what is what is sometimes an enormous school to be dealing with. So I had opted for political science. That's what I found myself most enjoying. So I taken courses that obviously interest me, right? You know, political science, some history ones, mostly social science. That's what I found myself best, best connotated towards. And I remember a few individuals, um, namely some people that um, lived in the same residence as me who were friends, um, but were often very critical of you know, my choices in terms of classes and what I wanted to do with my degree. Um, and that often came in the form of what I might call, for lack of a better term, abuse, um, verbal abuse and saying that, oh, you know, they're not courses that are going to get you anywhere. You know, your degree isn't worth as much. You know, why, why are you taking that class? That's not going to benefit you at all. How are you going to get a job with that type thing? So, I think my take home message today was that rejection comes in many forms. It can come in the form of getting rejected from a school, having a scholarship rejection, but it can also come from your colleagues and it can come from even people outside of school, you know, whether it's your family or, or strangers. Um, and that's sort of what I wanted to, to touch upon today. That sounds no, that's awful. <laughs> It's, and that's the thing, right? Because we talk a lot about like once you're inside the the institution, you know, and um, having that institutional rejection that you deal with, but not a lot of people talk about, you know, um, peer uh, rejection and that sort of thing in terms of ideologies that certain people hold. And it's it's hard to deal with. How do you think you you cope with that sort of rejection? Because it is a little bit different than, you know, the normal um, institutional rejection that we do see within academia. I think, first of all, I think it's a good question because the whole point of this series is to help be people better cope and mitigate any any rejection that they do face. So what I might say that helped me was take everything with a grain of salt and be true to yourself. Because while university can be practical in the sense that you are getting a degree in order to help, um, you know, improve your chances in the job markets. I also am a firm believer in the fact that you need to be doing something that you enjoy and later love because you're doing this for an exceptionally long time. I mean, I know you guys are all PhD students, so you know how long it takes to get up to that point, right? So I think for me, what I'd, what I'd say to anyone going through that is 
don't, you know, sticks and stones may break your bones, you know, yada, yada, yada. I, I think, I think that's a lot tougher, tougher, you know, done. Um, but what I would say is have faith in, in your abilities, you know, trust in yourself and your interests and likes. And so long as you are content with what you are studying, you will always find your way. And I am, a, I, I am certainly of that conviction and I will continue to preach that until I cannot. So how do you think that sort of rejection from, from peers, um, how do you think that's helped or helped you or hindered you as you moved on into, um, into graduate school? So I, I think personally, um, I, I went into graduate school immediately after my undergrad. So I never, I didn't take a gap year. Um, I decided that continuing full on as if nothing had changed was the best for me. Um, and I think that at least in terms of my experiences, there, there are certain things that um, I'm reminded of as a social science student. Um, social sciences aren't nearly well as funded as some of the other sciences, natural or life or, or anything in between, um, anything like computer engineering, any sort of engineering. Um, so it is a constant reminder that um, at least in my opinion, the social sciences are taken less seriously in, in universities. Um, and I also remember, you know, you remember certain things what people said. I remember wanting to take an Irish language course because the Irish language is, is not very speak, is not very, is not very well spoken in Ireland, believe it or not. We speak English more than we speak Irish. And I figured, you know, it might be just a nice way to get in touch with your cultural roots. And I remember one individual saying to me, like what a useless course to take, you know, it's, it's, it's just, I, I was, I was astounded that someone would have the nerve to say that to me, you know, to, to question my ability. Right. So I, I think that at least in my opinion, not, not constantly being reminded of it, but making sure that at least for me, that served as motivation. That's such an interesting thing to think of how other people uh, don't feel like they're supported or they don't feel like mm -hmm. they're supported from their peers and that sort of thing. Because yeah. at the end of the day, you know, it's what you want to do. If you're happy doing with what, what you're doing, then, you know, it shouldn't be bothersome to any other people. And I think the reason for that is there's such an emphasis in our society now, um, turning towards STEM fields and that sort of thing. And a lot of, um, a lot of that importance is lost on humanities and social sciences, which are mm. quite important, if not extremely important. So mm -hmm. it's, it's a shame that a lot of people do carry that, that stigma around with them in academia. Mm -hmm. And you know what, I, I think that, you know, this is, this is obviously not meant to be a witch hunt. This is, this is only ever meant to let those individuals know who might be suffering something similar that, um, I'm, I, you know, I wish I could say that I would love to eradicate it off the face of the earth, but I don't think that would be practical. So what I will say is that, um, be proud of not only who you are, but, but what you love to do, um, because that is something that makes you unique. That is something that makes you special in this world. And there is no greater feeling than studying what you love. And I hope that people can hear this and say, do you know what? Maybe it's actually not so bad after all. So. And Elizabeth, we're going to move on to you now. Um, you had some uh, feelings about, you know, course grades and that sort of thing. Oh, 
terms of rejection. Yes. No, we, we love the GPA. I've got some feelings about some GPAs up in here. Oh, I, um, I just first want to comment that Liam, I'm so appreciative that you brought forward your story because my minor, my, my minor, my undergrad is in contemporary studies and women's studies. I have a double major and a minor in Aboriginal studies. And I got that all the time. Uh, what are you going to do? What's your plan? And I just thought, you know, I don't know. It's an undergrad. I'm here to learn, find my passion. So I, I hear that. And it's so, such a valuable uh, comment that you made. But with regards to grades, um, like even to get into grad school, you need uh, a fairly high GPA. I don't know what it is in other programs, but I think Western uh, NHRS, it's I think at least an 80 or above. Um, and then to stay in the program. So once you're in, you got to stay in. And one of the things I find really hard is the marking is very different in grad school than it is in undergrad. So it's less about right or wrong and more about critical thinking and participation and engagement. Um, and I find, especially the participation, I'm going to be honest, I find it almost a little bit ableist in a couple of ways. So there are people for whom speaking up and speaking out in a verbal form is really difficult. Some people have anxiety, some people have extreme um, introverted personalities, and there are probably other disabilities that I can't think of right now that we're, we're speaking up and speaking out in class is just not, not only nerve-wracking but sometimes really really challenging to navigate and then you add our virtual environment that we're all learning in so i have one course we're expected to participate in an online form and there are 40 students posting two questions each plus responding to two questions so that's like i would say 120 plus messages that you're sifting through as a student to try and participate um, and then on top of that there's a lecture and then there's comments in the chat so as somebody with a disability, I'm trying to listen to the lecture being given on Zoom. I'm listening with my screen reader to the chat and I'm typing. So it's really hard to participate, but that's a huge part of the course, Mark. And it isn't, it's not just this course. There's a seminar course. Again, same thing. Participation is a huge part of the mark. And so I feel like one of the stresses that I have about grades is I understand the need to under, to, for students to be able to articulate what they've learned and for faculty to know that students are articulating what they've learned. But I would just ask that there be multiple methods to do that. I find um, there's a lot of weight on, on oral and verbal participation. Um, and even just the grades, like, I feel like how are you, sometimes I, I don't know if it's, if it's because you're so worried about getting that A, if you're learning as much as you would if, if perhaps it was like, okay, this is a pass-fail course, you're here to learn. Um, so there's, there's lots of things wrapped up in grades, I think. And it's, it's interesting to me that you brought that up too, because in grad school, I find that, you know, grades don't matter as much or they shouldn't matter as much. Um, mm -hmm. Because as long as you're, you know, receptive to the type of work that you're doing and you show engagement and you, you show a passion for what you're doing, like Liam was saying before, it doesn't, there, a numerical grade is not going to dictate um, how passionate you are and how much you're willing to work for your thesis part, at least. Mm -hmm. So it, it's interesting that, you know, at least thesis-based courses, in my opinion, have these numerical grades um, that have so much weight in terms of your participation in that sort of thing. 
And I know um, for certain programs, they have numerical grades for scholarships and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But Like Shark. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And <laughs> so it's for that reason, I can see why it's beneficial. But at the end of the day, you know, it's just for that. And I think that, you know, scholarships themselves should reevaluate how they pick their their candidates in that sense if they're only looking at numerical grades or that, that sort of thing. So it is, it's really interesting that you do bring that up. Yeah. I think alongside that as well, just knowing that there is such an emphasis being put on grades, but if you're someone who can't communicate or participate in the ways that are deemed as conventional, you've already been set up to fail or you've already been set up to not be able to achieve the grades that are needed to be perceived as successful because of the structural circumstances that you've been put in. You're not able to succeed in those circumstances. So it's just like, there's so many layers of not being able to succeed in ways that are conventional that ends up leading, I'm sure, to additional, and Elizabeth, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it just feels like if you're continually being put into situations where you can't fully participate or you can't fully engage in the ways that you're able to, and that is associated with the grade, which thereby leads to a lower grade, like how can you not end up feeling poorly in some regard about your capacity to engage or be a scholar in some regard exactly and and i think at the end of the day there are many different ways to assess participation but i feel like the emphasis in many courses on speaking out and and even like navigating those chat forms that's a phd in itself when you're when you're doing all of your readings and you're trying to do your thesis work and then you're reading through tons of messages and threads it's just it's like another thing you have to check and i already have a lot of things i have to check so Mm -hmm. one more thing to to add on that layering like monica was talking about so i'm going to ask a general question here in terms of general feelings of rejection in grad school what do you think is the best way to cope with it or what have you found is the best way to cope with it so liam we'll start with you great question um I, I think the most important thing is to have an outlet. Um, I certainly think that there are a lot of healthy options for people who are seeking some sort of release. Um, I've personally found great success in uh, physical exercise. So I know gyms are significantly limited in the COVID era. Um, however, I would strongly encourage anyone who feels overwhelmed or stressed to to seek out some form of physical exercise? I find it I found find it spellbinding in that regard, um, and just make sure that um, you know you know that you're you're never alone. That you know that I I would hope for everyone that there's just someone out there who you know even if you you, you curled up into a ball and and started crying to that that they'd be there for you and that and that they could they could help walk you through whatever whatever obstacles or issues you're navigating so i would certainly suggest um those two things elizabeth how about you yeah i really echo what liam says about the exercise um and i also think that there's absolutely no shame and in fact i encourage seeking out mental health supports especially during this time of coping with covid western has lots but uh if those don't jive with what what you need reaching out to folks in your community um 
I, I think it's really, really important to take care of our mental health and our mental well-being because it's pretty, can be pretty stressful in these waters. And I think also doing things like this, like talking about things we don't talk about is really important and having those kind of uncomfortable, intense moments and conversations where we're really unpacking and really kind of revealing some pretty vulnerable feelings about what rejection is and, and how it feels. I totally agree with you, Elizabeth. And that's partially why we are doing this podcast, you know, to make sure that everyone within the grad school sphere can understand that you are not alone, that all of us at one point or another have shared these feelings, have um, witnessed the rejection happening to them, to their friends, their peers. And again, echoing the fact that you are not alone, that it's, we should be normalizing this experience. So once again, I want to thank uh, Liam and Elizabeth for joining us for this segment. Um, this was really helpful and very clarifying. And um, yeah, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks, guys. <laughs> Bye, friends. Bye. See you later. <laughs> oh, gosh. So how are we feeling I feel about rejection? Tired. I feel tired listening to these stories because it's something that's so exhausting to hear over and over. Uh, but I know it's just a regular, you know, regular part of, of grad school and that sort of thing. And I, I do like how we're normalizing this, this experience here with, uh, with so many people coming on to share their stories. Mm. How do you two think you handle rejection? That's a good question. Um, so I get very <laughs> angry in the moment. I need to go to someone to vent it out in the first few seconds, but then you know, once I start coming, calming down a little bit, I can, uh, I can, you know, process what the rejection is and, um, and hopefully move on from there and sort of take it as a learning moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I definitely need a moment to vent it as soon as I experience it. Cause I usually get angry, upset. Then I'll try and walk it off or just do something to get my mind off of it. And then event and slowly it's, I, I start to, I wouldn't say get over it, but start to learn from it, understand it, and realize it's not the end of the world, and I just have to push towards the next goal and not let this hold me back. Monica, how about you? <laughs> Multiple ways. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> I think first and foremost, like I know something for me that I've really had to try to get useful used to and that I'm still working on is trying to disassociate my self-worth from my academic productivity or success. So for me, any sort of rejection is taken as a personal hit. And so the first thing that I'm still working on is trying to separate those two and understanding that any sort of rejection in an academic context isn't a rejection of me as a person. Um, So that's the first thing. Other than that, it's mainly like anger and spite. Um, It's like, I complain a lot. I'm a complainer. I need to tell people when (laughs) I've been rejected from something and I'm upset and I need to complain about it. Like, I think the story, like I have a story that perfectly encapsulates like what, like Monica in rejection mode. And this was back in like my first year of my PhD. I had applied for a scholarship And I had found out after the scholarship deadline, I got an email from our office saying that I had been disqualified from the scholarship competition because um, the instructions 
or I should say the qualifications for the scholarship weren't 100% clear. The way that I had read them was if you had an average of 80% over your last two years, then you were eligible to apply. But what they actually meant in the instructions was that you needed to have an average of 80% in each of the last two years. So unfortunately, my average, my undergrad last year average was like a 79 point something. So I got disqualified from the scholarship. I also opened up this meeting in the middle of a class. So to go to Elizabeth's point, like never open these emails in the middle of a class or a meeting. And um, I couldn't pay attention for the rest of the class because I was so upset. It took everything in me not to cry during this class. I went to the office and they ended up clarifying these qualifications. Um, ran to my car, cried for I don't know how long. And then by the time I got home, I was angry. And I sat down at my desk and I kid you not, I rage wrote an entire manuscript, an entire manuscript. Like I was so angry. I was like, if I'm getting disqualified from this, then I'm going to make sure that I'm 10 times more successful than winning this scholarship. And I'm going to go and I'm going to write a manuscript and I'm going to get it published. And I'm not even joking. Like we had that out like within a month to a journal. Like I rage wrote an entire manuscript. That's, that's so funny, Monica, because I always joke to everyone that the only thing that fuels my PhD is coffee and spite. Spite. <laughs> <laughs> and, and literally nothing gets done unless I have that like fire burning underneath me that I need to get it done now. And so I can 100% uh, empathize with you in that fact, because all of the things, all of the work that I've done has been fueled by spite and by, mm -hmm. you know, just internal rage. <laughs> yeah, 100%. Yeah. And it's silly. Like your grades from undergrad shouldn't have any bearing on you by the time you get to your PhD. Like definitely not. Yeah. I totally agree with you on that. Yeah. And um, it's funny because I did put out a poll on Twitter um, asking how our fellow followers slash grad students cope with rejection in grad school. And it's funny because a lot of people still struggle with it. You know, it's not something that you learn over time. Of course, the, the sting, as Danica said, gets uh, smaller and smaller as you keep uh, feeling rejection. But, you know, sometimes it doesn't go away, right? And like we mentioned before, stepping away and dissociating is also a factor that a lot of people um, try to do, a lot of uh, a coping factor that people try to um, to use in terms of feeling rejection and that sort of thing. So I feel like dissociating is such a huge aspect of it, making sure that you don't tie that rejection to your individual self-worth. So I totally agree with that. Mm -hmm. And it's hard. Like that's something that I think, like for me, it's always been a struggle and mm -hmm. it's still a struggle. But now that I'm aware of it and I'm cognizant of it, like I think that makes it a little bit easier to at least start the process. But None of us are perfect. None of us handle rejection well. Like no one should be feeling bad that they don't like chin up and just move on to the next thing because like it makes sense that you feel sad after being rejected from something. Yeah, totally agree. Yeah, I wonder if they could somehow put us in a grad seminar class. Just <laughs> a lecture on this is how you can cope with rejection or examples mm -hmm. of rejection. Now that I think about it, I think that could be a great topic to or even a workshop. I think it's important. Like, it's so important. Mm -hmm. And hopefully this 
this podcast segues into maybe more discussions on on rejection <laughs> because it is such a common experience, right? And it's not talked about as often as it should be. So this is, I think, this is a really good initiative coming from uh, coming from this podcast for sure. Yay! <laughs> so I think uh, I think that wraps up what we're talking about the rejection diaries as we're calling it um the not so kept uh not so well kept secret of rejection it's a diary that everyone can read (laughs) yeah diary that everyone can read hopefully not too embarrassing or not too shameful um but yes i want to thank everybody for listening and hope to see you guys next time don't keep these rejections too close to heart thank you for listening (laughs) (laughs) Mm-hmm. <laughs>